Hey, well, good morning, and thank you for being here with us in worship. And if you're in our overflow room, we want to welcome you, as well as those of you who are watching on Facebook Live or on, um, on our website. So most of you know that uh, before I came here to Northway Church, that Katie and I lived in Italy. Uh, we were in Rome serving with the mission organization there. And while we were there, we learned about a certain symbol uh, that the Italians have. It's called the cornuto, and it is the sign of devil horns. It's made like this, and it is believed that that will ward off curses. It's almost like if someone says something bad might happen, and we knock on wood and say, boy, I sure hope not. It's almost similar to that. And so this was a sign that was used to ward off curses or bad luck. That same sign turned up, <clears throat> excuse me, upside down was very offensive to Italians. Um, it, it basically meant, I hope that your current or future spouse is unfaithful to you. And so that kind of symbol was very similar to another symbol that we give in this country. And it was just something that you did not do. So while we were living there, we had some missionary friends uh, who worked with us. And at the time, their son was seven years old. Uh, he went to public school in Italy. He was in second grade. And one day his teacher called these parents to say, your son has misbehaved in class. We've got a serious issue. I need you to come to the school and meet with me about it. So the next day they go in for the parent-teacher conference, and this teacher said that their son made this sign, the cornuto, but upside down to her after she had gotten on to him about talking in class. And then when she turned her back, he made that symbol the assistant teacher saw him do it and reported it to the teacher. And this teacher said to my missionary friend parents, y'all need to deal with this. You gotta, you've got to punish your son for making this sign. Well, you, as you can imagine, our friends were just in shock. You know, they said there must be some mistake. He, he doesn't even know that symbol. I mean, he wouldn't know what it meant. There's no way he did it. And the teacher said, yes. I know he did. The assistant was very clear with what she saw. You need to go home and correct your son. They said they would. They go home. They sit down with their seven-year-old son. And if you've ever parented small children, you know how hard it is to, to reconstruct the events of the previous day. I mean, most of the time you can't do it for the previous hour, but to go back 24 hours and to say, hey, did this happen? And what did you do? And so they asked all these questions. They finally were able to say, did your teacher get on to you in class for talking? And he sort of sheepishly said, yes, ma'am. What did you do after she got on to you? He froze. He wouldn't say. And I thought, oh, no. You know, our, our seven-year-old son, he did the sign to the teacher. He wished that her husband would be unfaithful. How does he even know this? And they kept pressing and kept pressing on the issue. And finally they said to him, what did you do when the teacher turned her back on you? And he very quietly said, I shot a web at her. <laughs> you did what? I shot a web at her. All of a sudden they got it. His favorite cartoon was Spider-Man, and she got on to him about talking, and she turned her back, and he shot a web at her to trap her in his web. 
Well, they were relieved that he had not made another sign. He still got in trouble. You're not supposed to trap your teacher in a web after she gets on to you. And they called the teacher, and she agreed that it certainly wasn't as bad as what she thought it was. Here's why I tell you that. Symbols are very powerful. Uh, symbols are rarely just symbolic. Uh, it, it's, it's very few times that a symbol is merely a symbol. Symbols carry a lot of meaning and a lot of weight. Uh, for example, uh, one symbol is a stop sign. A, a stop sign, you could argue, is nothing but some hammered out metal painted with some letters on it. It's just symbolic. But it's a powerful symbol. It means something. In fact, if you see this symbol and you do not do something very specific when you see this symbol, this symbol, there could be disastrous, deadly consequences as a result. If you're an American citizen, then the flag is a powerful symbol. It means something. You could argue that this is just cloth with some colors on it and, and I've dyed in a certain way and shaped in a certain way, but we would say, no, 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 it means so much more than that. When the astronauts placed this symbol on the moon when they landed there, that was a powerful moment. When the Marines put this flag, raised this flag on the island of Iwo Jima, that was a powerful moment. That symbol meant something. Uh, as well, in our culture, as well as most cultures, there's the symbol of the wedding band. You could argue this is just some gold or platinum or some other metal that's extracted from the earth and hammered out into the shape of a circle. But we know that these symbols mean something. They represent commitment, a commitment made between a man and a woman. These are powerful symbols. If you're a follower of Christ, uh, there's another set of powerful symbols that is, the cup and the bread. Uh, these certainly are not extremely valuable. You know, some wine or juice in a cup and, and some bread that's baked without yeast, what we would call crackers. It's not like you're going to go to an expensive restaurant and pay a lot of money for a meal that's just these two items. I mean, we could, we could argue that the, these two items themselves, the elements themselves, aren't very valuable. But if you follow Christ, there is... There is a lot to these symbols. These symbols represent the very heart of what we believe, and this is what we're going to talk about today. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, Mark is the second book in your New Testament, so go Matthew, Mark. If you get to Luke, you've gone too far. Uh, we'll be in the 14th chapter of Mark. Uh, what Mark describes here in this chapter is Jesus and his 12 disciples getting together to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, this was a meal that was celebrated by Jewish families every year in the spring, and it remembered the events that had happened some 1,500 years before Christ came. Uh, when the Egyptians held the Israelites in slavery, and God raised up a man named Moses to go to the Pharaoh to the king of Egypt and say it's time to let God's people go. This celebration remembered those events in general and specifically remembered the night that God sent the death angel into Egypt. God instructed before that night for the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to paint that blood on the doorpost of their homes. And when they did that, the death angel would then come into Egypt and pass over their homes which is exactly what happened. That night, the death angel came in, passed over the homes of the Israelites, 
But the firstborn sons and all of the Egyptian families, including the firstborn son of the Pharaoh himself, died. That was the event that finally convinced the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Every year in the spring, Jewish families would get together and they would celebrate this Passover event. And they would do so with a very specific meal that remembered all of those events that had happened. Uh, On Passover Eve at noon that day, all work would cease. The, The man of the household would take a lamb. He would go to the temple and he would go to the altar in the temple and there He would slaughter a lamb, uh, or the priest would slaughter a lamb. They would take the blood of the lamb. They would sprinkle it on the altar, and they would give the lamb back to the man who would take it home. The lamb would be roasted, and they would celebrate the Passover meal together. What Mark writes about in Mark 14 are the events of that Thursday afternoon and that Thursday evening. So again, if you've got a Bible, this is Mark 14, and we'll start in verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which was another name for the Passover festival because they used this unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, these instructions enabled these disciples to know exactly who it was that they were supposed to follow. A man carrying a jar of water was extremely unusual. Uh, Women carried water. Men did not carry water in that day. It would be like me sending you downtown and saying, look for the man riding the unicycle. You would have no trouble spotting that man. You're not going to see a lot of men riding a unicycle. This was that case. Go find a man carrying water and then follow him. And then verse 14. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So Jesus had already talked to some individual, likely a wealthy individual, who had a house with a guest room upstairs that was a large room, And Jesus has said, I would like to eat the Passover in this room. And so he sends the disciples to talk to this man so that there they could make the preparations for the Passover. Verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. So that Jesus and his disciples were not staying in the city of Jerusalem. During Passover, the population of Jerusalem would just swell in size. And so they were staying just outside of the city. So get the picture. Jesus sends disciples into the city. They make preparations. They come back. They tell Jesus and the others it's ready. Then they go back into the city to celebrate the Passover. Verse 18. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. So if you've ever seen pictures or paintings of the Last Supper, if you've ever seen Da Vinci's famous portrayal of the Last Supper, 
You know that it has the disciples and Jesus seated at a long table in chairs. That's an inaccurate portrayal of the Last Supper. Uh, The Passover meal was always celebrated with individuals uh, at a low table reclining on one arm, eating with the other hand, feet away from the table. It was designed to be a very relaxed, enjoyable celebration. Except here, Mark tells us that there was sort of a somber tone over the meal that night when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And then those disciples, one by one, looked at Jesus and said, Me? Is it me? Surely you don't mean, is it me? Jesus, am I the one who will betray you? Which meant these 12 men, having spent roughly three years of their lives following Jesus around, watching him perform miracle after miracle, seeing him heal people, watching him raise a man named Lazarus from the dead, knowing without a doubt that this was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, that night at the table when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, each of them knew that within them was the possibility to stab Jesus in the back. They all understood that they might just be the one to betray betray Jesus. We'll come back to this in just a minute. So after the disciples respond, is it I, is it I? This is what Jesus said, verse 20. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, Understand there's a little bit of irony here in this passage. Uh, Eating with someone, specifically breaking bread with someone, was a sign of intimacy. It was was a sign of a close connection, a deep personal friendship. And so when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and everyone says, is it me? Is it me? And he says, it's the one who takes bread and dips it in the bowl with me. It, it feels like a Shakespearean tragedy. The one who indicates that he is a close companion, that he is loyal to Jesus, he will be the one to betray Jesus. And ultimately, we know that that was Judas, who acted like he was the most loyal disciple up until the moment that he kissed Jesus on the cheek and betrayed him into the hands of the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Jesus continues in verse 22. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now Mark did not record these events just because they happened. He specifically recorded this event because Jesus that night gave to his disciples and by extension to us these symbols. That when we take these symbols, they have a lot of meaning. Uh, and a lot of meaning that reminds us of something very specific. If you've got your bulletin with you, this is on the back. 
the Lord's Supper reminds us, number one, of the depth of our sin. When you think about the Lord's Supper, there is a reason that Jesus gave these symbols that night. In fact, there are a number of reasons, and one of the reasons that he gave these symbols that night, rather than a week before or two weeks before or a year before, the reason he gave it that night is because Jesus knew that later that night that all of these individuals around the table, except for John, would in fact betray Jesus. He looked around the room and he said, one of you will betray me. And they all said, do you mean me? Is it me? Surely not I, Lord. And ultimately, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus. And yet every one of those disciples that night, except for John, in their own way, betrayed Jesus. Peter, who was arguably the closest companion of Jesus, later after Jesus was arrested, Peter followed from a distance as Jesus was taken to the home of the high priest. And there he was placed through this illegal trial in the middle of the night. Peter stood off at a distance in a courtyard, and there a young girl approached him and said, I know you. You're Galilean. You were one of the ones with Jesus. You're one of the companions of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Peter cursed at this young girl and denied even knowing Jesus. Just a few hours later, Jesus would be placed on a cross where he hung from a about nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. And while Jesus hung there, all of the disciples, except for John, scattered like cockroaches. They ran, afraid of their lives. Jesus asked that question that night. One of you will betray me, or made the statement, one of you will betray me. And each of them understood that within them, they had the possibility to betray Jesus. There's an Anglican bishop who is now with the Lord uh, named H.C.G. Moule who once wrote these words, Never was there a heresy, but it had something to do with an insufficient estimation of sin. Never was there a heresy, never was there a false belief, never was there a false teaching that it had something to do with an insufficient estimate of sin. I think he's exactly right. Normally, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of salvation begins with a wrong view of ourselves. Believing that we are all basically born good people who just need a little bit of a a course correction, who just need a little bit of grace to get us over the hump, or just a little bit of gospel to get our foot in the door of heaven. Whenever we believe that, the only problem is is that we believe something that is a lie. Any gospel that begins with our goodness is a lie. Any gospel that doesn't begin with our severe and complete brokenness isn't a gospel at all. It's a message that starts with a lie that leads us to believe that, that Jesus came not for our salvation completely, but that Jesus came just to help us out a little bit so that we could do just, just a little course correction to somehow start living our best life now. We start believing that Jesus came, for example, just to make us better people, 
just to give us some moral lessons so that we can know how to treat one another with kindness or that Jesus came to tell us that we were already saved, that God loves us and we just need to to understand and to hold on to that truth that we're already saved or that Jesus came to teach us how to cope with our problems. And we start to believe the lie that Jesus came as a sort of ancient Dr. Phil that somehow through listening to his advice will somehow be okay and that we'll make it. Any gospel that doesn't begin with our severe and complete brokenness is not a gospel at all. Notice what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Let me ask you this. Does that sound like someone who needs just a little bit of tweaking or just a little bit of course correction? Someone who is dead in their transgressions, do they just need a little bit of advice? Someone who follows the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Those whose spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient? Do people like that just need some good moral lessons? Paul goes on to say, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This meal that we're going to take in a little while reminds us of the depth of our sin. And understand this, you will never fully appreciate the incredible grace of God unless you understand the severe depth of your own sin. You'll never fully get the grace of God unless you understand your complete brokenness before him. If you've been in church any amount of time at all, you know the name Paul. Uh, The writer of this letter to the church at Ephesus, the man who wrote 13 books that are in our New Testament, uh, the one who planted churches all over the Middle East and Asia and ultimately into Europe, uh, arguably the greatest missionary in the history of the church, The Apostle Paul was an incredibly godly man, and yet in a letter that he wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Some translations say the worst of sinners. Was Paul, this godly man, the worst of sinners? The chief of sinners? It wasn't that he was out there living in such a way where he could say, well, I'm worse than everybody else in my sin. It's that he understood that within him, on his own, there was nothing good at all. And it was only through Christ that he was able to do anything, anything good at all. The first thing this meal reminds us of is the depth of our sin. The second thing that it reminds us of is the sacrifice of Jesus. Another reason that Jesus specifically gave these elements on that night was because Jesus tied in the Passover meal with his own life and the sacrifice that he would make the next day. This meal that had been celebrated for 1,500 years, Jesus pointed to element after element after element of that meal to say, this represents me, and this represents my sacrifice, and this represents what I will do on your behalf. And when Jesus got 
to a very specific cup in the Passover meal called the cup of redemption that represented the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus stopped and said, this cup, this cup in particular represents my blood, which is shed for you. In the future, when you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus tied his sacrifice back to the Passover lamb to say this lamb that was sacrificed this afternoon, that lamb remembers the death angel and the salvation this lamb provided from physical death, but my sacrifice will provide salvation from spiritual death. Mark does not elaborate on this, but historians tell us that that afternoon before the Passover meal began, that that literally thousands of lambs were sacrificed. Men would bring these lambs up to the temple area, and they would go inside, and there these lambs would be sacrificed on the altar, and the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the altar, and the blood of the lamb would flow down that altar, and underneath the altar was a drain. That drain ran from the temple area underneath the temple mount all the way down to the Kidron Valley and to a stream that cut through that valley. And that as lamb after lamb after lamb was sacrificed, that that stream in that valley ran blood red as a reminder to the Israelites of the blood that was shed for their salvation. Jesus here says to his disciples, that blood, all those years of that blood, was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that I will make tomorrow. For your salvation, just as the death angel saved your sons from physical death, my sacrifice saves you from spiritual death. Here's how the writer of Hebrews describes it. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves or lambs or any other animal, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption, meaning that when we come and we take this cup, we're remembering that the sacrifice of Christ and His blood was a once-for-all sacrifice. That we do not have to continually sacrifice animals to make atonement. That in Christ, our sin was fully and finally forgiven. The third and final reminder of the Lord's Supper is of God's great love for us. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, We were dead in our transgressions. We were objects of wrath. We followed the ways of the world. We had nothing good in us, but Christ made a sacrifice, and here's what we read. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Here is what is so amazing about this meal. That night, Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples, these men he had spent three years with, and he sat down and he celebrated this meal with them, knowing that in just a few hours, they would all betray him. Judas would ultimately betray him, but all of them would essentially turn their backs on Jesus. And yet he celebrated this meal with them anyway. He gave them the bread and he gave them the cup, knowing that they would betray Jesus. And he ate with them anyway, which means this is the perfect meal for sinners. 
Jesus gave us this meal not for those of us who are good enough, not for those of us who have done everything right this past week, not for those of us who are perfect in everything that we say and everything that we do. Jesus gave us this meal for those of us who have blown it, for those of us who have sinned, for those of us who have betrayed others, for those of us who have pursued sin more than than pursuing God, for those of us who time and time again have failed God. Here's the great news for you. If you've had an awful week, if you've blown it time and time again, if the way that you have spoken to your spouse or your kids or your friends has not been the way in retrospect that you would speak to them, if you have chosen sin rather than choosing God, if you have this week failed to get up and spend time with God, if, if you've just been this past week just overwhelmed with anxiety and you've not had a chance at all to even pray to God, and you feel like right now you're not worthy of taking this meal, here's what you need to know. You're right. You're not. And I'm not either. Jesus did not give us this meal for those of us who are worthy. He gave us this meal for those of us who have blown it and we have failed and we understand our brokenness. And we understand that we need the grace of Jesus and that without Him, we are nothing at all. So in these next moments, we're going to take this meal together. You have there in your seat the cup. You've got the bread on top. Uh, we invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, to, to participate in this meal with us. Uh, if you're not a member of this church, we invite you to participate in this meal with us. If you're not a member of any church, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. As long as you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take this meal and remember the grace of God on our lives. We'll start just as Jesus did that night. Mark tells us that Jesus took bread and he broke the bread and he said to his disciples there, this, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. In the future when you take this, do this in remembrance of me. Mark tells us that, that same night that Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant made possible by my blood. A covenant not of law, uh, a covenant not of you better follow all of the rules, but a covenant of grace. And in the future, when you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me.